Welcome to DevCast. Dev Technology Group has been delivering information technology solutions that enable government missions for 20 years. And this podcast is where we share the inspiration behind our work, as well as the technical details of implementing IT systems for the federal government. I'm Will Nichols, and today, once again, I'm joined by CTO Yemi Oshinai and Director of Technology Adam D'Angelo. Hey, guys. Good to see you again. Great to be here. Welcome. Hey, Will. Hey, thanks. Um, Listen, I know... Yemi, you had some things you wanted to talk about from your automation panel that you went to. Why don't you tell us what that was all about? Yeah, so uh, I had a panel on the uh, automative, automation imperative uh, last night. Dev Technology and Salesforce hosted it. And it, there were three industry panelists that were former federal employees. And our conversation was about automation. Coolest thing about the conversation was that we were going to talk about automation at DevOps, but it actually turned into a culture conversation, which just gives you the idea of how much culture is influential and in how IT uh, is delivered. So we talked about how the government can implement automation, um, how it affects employees in the workforce, and what were strategies to make it stick. What are some of the big opportunities or projects involving automation in the in the federal space. Yeah, so one of them was uh, robotic process automation. So robotic process automation takes repeatable, repeatable tasks. So let's say filling out a form and submitting it, you can actually do that with a computer as opposed to a human. So the computer is more accurate, uh, can do those kind of mundane tasks uh, faster and, and better. Uh, where a human can look at some of the more intelligent things. So if I have a lot of anomalies in data, I can use the human to look at that, whereas the robot does that. Uh, we even spanned out to self-driving cars. Uh, so when we talked about that, uh, we talked about the barriers also to implement automation and the barriers for some of that innovation. Well, what are some of the barriers to that innovation? Uh, Cult so cultural? Cultural, people. So one of the big barriers when you talk about robotic process automation is everyone says, I'm going to lose my job, right? Uh, so there's truth to the fact that you'll lose your role. But I think just like anything else, and I told a story about the horse and the buggy, everybody remembers that guy Ford, right? <laughs> when he invented the car, there was so much opposition because he said horse and buggies were more efficient. Uh, and they said, you know, why would you want to use a car? Lo and behold, when we found a car, we found other things to fill our time with. Uh, also brought up just, you know, analogies like making coffee. Years and years ago, how long did it take to grind coffee beans and put it on the stove? And now you can pop a cup under somewhere and, you know, five seconds later you have coffee. It's not that we have all this free time now that we can make coffee in five minutes. There are things we're using to fill that time. Same thing, if I can find a robot to fill out these forms, now I can find people to analyze who my customer is. How do I deal with customer quality? Those things that um, provide ingenuity. But because of fear, folks don't want to allow that to happen um, because they're worried about changing jobs or changing their skill sets. Hmm. I think there was a former Facebook executive who left, and he's been... Um, you know, on Capitol Hill talking about how, you know, moving forward, the United States is going to have to start kind of probably possibly paying its own citizens more and more in welfare, and maybe even having to start looking after Europe as the United States and China start moving automation, AI forward. And a lot of those jobs that used to be more black and white, easily repeatable, are going to disappear. Um, at, at some level. And it's going to be those grayscale jobs, the creative thinking jobs that'll still 
remain and exist. Um, but there's definitely a lot of fear around automation in the long run. Um, you know, how, how does that factor in? I mean, as, as we move that technology forward, don't you think that there's a, a risk involved there? Like, how we, you know, you're talking about, yeah, Ford was able to create this automated process, the assembly line, and look, we, we, we kind of wound up okay. Um, but just because that happened in the past doesn't mean that's going to be successful moving forward. I mean, technology is moving way faster than it ever has, right? Back in Ford's time. Yeah. Um, are we actually going to be able to educate our people to keep up with the the rising pace of these massive companies like Facebook and Google and all the amazing things that they're able to do? Well, I think that's a key point. I think that that is one of the factors that's different is education. Um, I mean, you, you just alluded to the factory. So, I mean... I'm reading a book called The Lynch Pit by Seth Godin right now. It's a great book. And he talks about our factory mindset. To some degree, what we do today is a factory job, right? We're coming in at whatever time and we're leaving at a certain time. So as that mindset goes into play, you can find something that can do those repetitive tasks that to come in, type some keys, input some information, and then submit that information to a database. But if we educate folks to think more like in terms of artistry, let me apologize for the abrupt change of subject here. We, we just lost a little bit of content due to some technical difficulties, but I'll move on. We wanted to talk a little bit about the job market in the D.C. area. What's it like for developers right now in this area? Are there shortages? I think that's a pretty interesting question because that's something Yemi and I are very involved in and in, in the hiring here at Dev Technology and getting out and um, recruiting talent and talking to counterparts in the federal space. Um, I think there are more technical jobs than there are good developers down here. Um, I don't know if that's a, a unique problem to the Beltway. I mean, I think that might be true probably in most parts of the country. I, I definitely think um, the education and the skill around technology um, is limited, right? Um, so this area also, because of the nature of federal contracting, has requirements that you might not find in Denver or San Francisco with security clearances. So if somebody is looking to get into a career here in the D.C. area, um, you know, if somebody doesn't, if they came from San Francisco, one of the big tech giants, and they're qualified, how important is them having a security clearance for you to hire them? Are you willing to take on people that have skills but don't necessarily have that security part yet? Yeah, I think we do today. I mean, it's not 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 in large quantity because now we cascade into other problems. Getting them clear takes a long time. So you have to have a balance of folks that are cleared and then try to take a chance on folks that are not cleared. But right. that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, even folks who might, you know, maybe they're not you know, U.S. citizens, we might still hire them to be thought leaders within our company, but let me, let you're me not going to put scenario. them on the contract. Tell me how you would think about this. You've got a position for, let's say, a mid-level Java developer, and you've got two candidates. One has, say, 10 years experience. Another has five years experience. The five-year guy has the security clearance. The 10-year guy has more qualifications, more experience, you know, maybe he's willing to work for the similar salary range. Who do you hire in that situation? Someone with a little bit less uh, technical experience, but a clearance, or somebody who's technically really up there? Well, That's I, a tough one, right? Well, all experience isn't created equal anyway. I mean, you could have somebody who has five years experience who is more talented than somebody with a master's degree or a PhD, and 
30 years experience. I mean, that's just the realistic nature of the the beast, but um, it also depends on your hiring needs, right? If you have an immediate need on a mission critical project that you know, that, that clearance goes a long way towards saying, hey, that might be the right fit for this position. You know, there are, there are specifics involved at that level, right? You know, I guess that leads me into this sort of next topic, which is the overall level of sort of professionalism in IT as a, as a career. And there are obviously a lot of disciplines of IT. You could be a developer, a system administrator of databases or networks or... Uh, you know, all, all kinds of things. So if you looked at medicine or civil engineering, for example, those fields have very prescribed pathways. You could be in, uh, you could be in academics. You could become a researcher. There's, you know, large research institutions devoted to both those disciplines, right? Many of them. Um, you could become a practitioner, a surgeon, or a civil engineer, in IT, it's a, it's a different sort of field. Anybody can pick up a computer and start coding. You can't, nobody, not everybody can pick up a, a, you know, walk into a surgical suite and do surgery. So there are differences, right? But I think IT could probably benefit from a level of sort of professionalism, academic research that, you know, a lot of this research and, and the practices come out of the tech giants right now, right? Scaling. Um, the the scaling of IT systems and and these these things come out of private enterprise. If you go, if you want to become a database expert or get hired as a database administrator, you're going to need probably a proprietary certification, not an academic degree. Right? You're going to need a Oracle certification or a IBM DB2, whatever the latest, whatever the certifications are, manufacturer specific, or a Cisco networking certification. So when I learned about networking, not many people are saying, hey, go read our RFC, you know, 1384, whatever, you know, private IP addresses are. You're sort of looking through the Microsoft handbook for DHCP addressing. You're not, you know, you can go look at standards, but a lot of it's pr proprietary. So where do you think sort of this that level of professionalism, what we don't quite see like you do in some other disciplines? And what are the differences? Well, starting by talking about the other disciplines, I mean, you know, when people started building buildings and first doing medicine thousands of years ago, there was no professional discipline around it, right? I mean, I view IT in the, you know, juvenile stages of its progression, right? We're still cutting bodies open in the basement and building shacks out of whatever we can. I mean, I, I don't think that there is a maturity throughout the IT profession as a whole to build like a true, you know, professionalism around it. Now, having said that, I mean, I think there are core fundamentals that, you know, most technical professionals should learn, but these things are changing so rapidly. I mean, even when, I remember when I was in university 20 years ago now, my curriculum started with C and C++, and then that kind of intro to computer science, algorithms, data structures. But by my junior year, it shifted to being taught in Java, you know, for the incoming freshmen. So, you know, right there in the middle of my formal education, it changed, and it's still changing. It changes all the time. So trying to compare it to medicine or a formal discipline of engineering, I don't think IT is there yet. I just don't think we could do that. 
Yeah, I think I think the other thing is is if you look at it uh, from a practical sense, like you take medicine, right? I, I think there's a there's a risk factor that has to do with medicine that it needs to be regulated. Same thing with law and buildings and things like that. Um, with software development, it, th- there's a natural discipline, right? It, it, the communities exist, standards do exist, quality assurance exists. So if you look at the quality industry, there are regulations like we do 9001, CMMI. Those things help regulate software delivery. And you don't want to regulate software itself because there's still there's still an art to it. And, and by taking the handcuffs off, you allow art to develop. Uh, I think it's similar with medicine. So there are like, there's natural medicine. Um, you have a lot of Chinese medicine. So those things don't have a quote unquote discipline. And you see some of those things seeping into our kind of more mainstream medical practice. So if you use that analogy, I think they're pretty similar. And those are the guardrails. Quality becomes a guardrail for the software industry. Yeah, I mean, look at where some of these tech giants started. They started in garages. I mean, they still do. I mean, there's 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 probably a startup in somebody's garage or parents' basement right now that's going to be the next Facebook, the next Google. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the the reality of it, right? So, you know, you can't do that with medicine. I mean, you really can't. I mean, you're going to come up with a new medical procedure in your basement. I mean. That sounds a little fishy to me. <laughs> a I'm, I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> I'm sure it's been done too, unfortunately. <laughs> Hopefully not recently. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> well, the other thing too is if you look at another similarity, you look at um, the drug industry. Uh, everyone's buying up everyone. So the, the best drug comes from the biggest uh corporation same thing with technology so you know dhcp like you said or ips they're not microsoft everybody uses them but because they're so big and they corner the market that's all you think about uh and unfortunately because we're in a capitalist society that's the way it's going to be for quite some time uh but if you pay attention to great thing about the open source community you can actually see rumblings of things that are different and then lo and behold once it gets really good a big company will buy it, <laughs> i.e. Red Hat. <laughs> yeah. And, and in bringing up open source, in fact, the, you know, that's a really important part of this because the, 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 um, the security conferences, DEF CON and all that stuff, they, they are – it almost is like academia. And, of course, many of those are researchers and ac- academics there, but there's a whole other group of just open source hackers. They are doing thousands and thousands of little experiments every day, you know, in, in this field to, dis- to discover things. So it really, it, it isn't necessarily fair to compare it to, to these other uh, professions. But I do think there's probably some learning to be done there. Um, or some, some examples. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, and I think it's coming. I think so as you see the advent of platforms, like we have software as a service and we're starting to have uh, different platforms that allow you to build custom code without having to know the code. I mean, those are things that standards will be built around that. Uh, You have the platforms that manage, I mean, now look at containers. I mean, you talk about things like that. We're gonna have security standards associated with them. Uh, You have architecture. As architecture becomes more solidified, the architecture. So there's so many things around, let's call the software, the tools, around those tools that you'll start to have more um, discipline, more professionalism. I mean, it could be, so the, the, the scalpel 
there are different types of scalpels and specifications, but only because there's so many scalpels. The more scalpels we get in software development, the more we're going to have to have specifications. Yeah. And there were a lot of surgeons inventing little tools in their, in their garages and basements. So maybe, maybe this is some, a good analogy uh, for what we do or for what you guys do. <laughs> and, and there is research being done in this field to try to, to, try to push this idea forward, I think. And, and a book I've read, I'll, I'll recommend you guys, I'll put the, a link for the book in the show notes. It's called Taming Information Technology, uh, Lessons from Studies of Systems administrators. And it's done by uh, some researchers. Let's see, the the guy's name, uh, Esser Kondigan, Eben Haber, John Bailey did this. And they they treated system administrators in several big companies sort of like a, uh, they did almost an ethnographic study like you would do of a great apes tribe, right? And they they watched and video and audio taped and screen recorded different groups of uh, IT support and sysadmins, database, network, Windows server admins, all this stuff. And they wrote this sort of study. And one of the big things, and I really highly recommend this book. I think it's really the only research study of its kind that's been done in this way. It took a pretty long time. They f- one of the big findings was how collaborative IT, um, how collaborative IT work is, and you guys know having been in it. But I still think there's kind of a persistent myth of IT as geeks in a dark room with bright screens not interacting. And the fact is, all of these projects and doing doing support and administration take an enormous amount of communication and grounding in each other's knowledge and all of those things. So this is a great book that talks about that. It's an example of some of the research that's, that's being done out there. Well, I would add, uh, so I like that. I like that you said it because some of the other things, and, and maybe this is the, as you mentioned, Adam, the maturity of the software development uh, environment is the things that happen around it. So the advent of Agile, it was necessary to force folks to actually start to collaborate and take feedback from your business owner to your team. So Agile came about. Um, There was no standard around it, but now we're seeing SAFE. Uh, Now we're seeing like IC Agile and Scrum. So I'm not sure that like the software itself, I mean, open source will still be kind of loose and fast, but standards will erupt around all that. Uh, and they're going to start to grow more and more. And that may be what we're seeing as those things happen, like DevOps. The, the DevOps conference happens now because you need to assemble and understand that DevOps is a culture, and this is how we implement culture. Um, they're dojos and guilds. And so those become kind of institutions around the concept of building software. So that that may be what's happening. That's the professionalism. It's a little different because people are wearing shorts and flip-flops. But, <laughs> but often they still came out of... Uh, they often still came out of a pretty strong academic background in DevOps compared to, say, just, you know, system administration or something. It's a little more computer science right. education right. compared to maybe business or IT management. Right. It could be a little different. Yeah, and I also think the growth is going to change because what's happening now is everything is IT. So it, it's IoT, and as you start to touch uh, critical infrastructure, you start building roads with IoT sensors, yeah, we're going to get standards. That's just coming <laughs> very, very fast at that point. 
Yeah, I actually have a, a, a friend who's in town. She works for Facebook. Um, she's part of their, their legal team, and she's going to be on Capitol Hill um, <laughs> answering some questions, privacy-related stuff, right? I think regulation is coming to IT, just like you said. Um, IT's in everything now, right? I mean, we, we talked about this on a previous episode, how H, uh, what is it, HBSC has more uh, technical employees than they do bankers. I mean, and, and that's not a, a stand a standalone example, right? Um, so yes, I think there's going to be a lot more regulation. I think there needs to be more regulation um, and maturity around IT systems, IT system development, and those processes, whether it's agile, DevOps. I mean, we're, we're, we're definitely getting there, but we are still in that kind of infantile stage. We are not a very mature industry uh, right. at all. And things still change so fast. So what are some of the what are some of the regulations or ideas around regulation that you would that you think is needed? I mean, I mean, you know, you can have things like uh, encryption standards, uh, but but so many of these standards they're they're changing and adapting now. We've got five G coming out, so um, it it's a tough thing to regulate anything that's changing so fast. Also, the people who are putting together the regulations don't understand the problems, do they? They don't. I mean, it's a, the people that made these companies, Mark Zuckerberg, and they, they built these companies not, I don't think they had any idea of the power or danger or risk. No, or, no. For good or bad that, right. they, that they had. Would agree. You know, I mean, there's revolutions in Northern Africa. Yeah. You know, wouldn't have happened without Facebook and Twitter. True. That's right. Yeah, or or wireless technology, right? You put all those things together, right? Now that now they you have these cell phone networks, so you didn't have this mature infrastructure where you had, you know, telephone capability, peer to peer communication, and now you have this IT infrastructure there because it made more sense to build out cellular towers, and then you throw Twitter, Facebook on top of that. Um, so two technologies that just wound up playing really well together. And you're right. I mean, the the, the Arab Spring, right? It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Regulation is also tricky, right? So regulation is usually for a couple things. One, to manage scarce resources. Two, to prevent like sprawl. And three, is some risk or danger. So if you think about it, I mean, software is kind of like air, right? So you're always going to have enough of software until it becomes a challenge. So like security becomes a challenge. You have to regulate there. Uh, if it becomes such that there's a monopoly, you'll regulate a certain kind of software. So software is a... Regulating, because you have to find out why you would regulate it. And, and so for the most part, I don't think the software itself needs to be regulated. The use does. Uh, the use can get out of hand. Uh, like, for example, you talked about Wi-Fi. It, because it's radio frequency technology, we don't know how many channels we'll have at a certain point. And what happens when one channel interferes with another channel? So you have to regulate that. But you don't necessarily have to regulate me building an app uh, on you know the app store, but we have experience regulating infrastructure. That's something that right. you know we've done for a very long period of time with you know AT and T back in the day. So I mean that's not something that we're necessarily new to. Um, I think I think it's probably around data and data protection and data usage that's going to be the most interesting aspect of it. But that almost begs to differ. You know, beg, begs a different question of it, it's even more fascinating to me how quickly people are willing to just sign away that data and. I don't know. I haven't really seen any studies or any numbers, but I don't think with all the data leaks and, you know, the recognition that there are targeted advertisements and Russian hackers targeting you on Facebook, I don't think people are dropping off of Facebook. I've heard a few people say that they're not using it, but that's only from an anecdotal level, not really from a 
you know, a systemic level. Yeah, and and uh, almost nobody cares if they have your data and they're keeping it in an unsafe way. You know, just at my apartment complex, I had to. we have a new parking system, had to register, had to upload a copy of my insurance card and my driver's license uh, and, my, and a picture of my license plate and, uh, you know, into this who knows what anonymous parking registration website somewhere. They're run out of who knows where. And uh, I, I went to the rental office to get my sticker and, and I said, hey, uh, I, don't, I don't really, I'm not that comfortable loading all that stuff up on the website. And he said, well, in your previous parking registration, we have all that stuff right here in our, in our file cabinet. And then we scan it into this PC and we have both of them. So you're already, like he was justifying one breach of sort of privacy by, oh, we've always had this breach of privacy and it, and now it's just twice as bad. So there's, and he didn't know, you know, he, he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm putting these people's identity at risk. He just doesn't know. People don't have any idea about, about the dangers. And I don't know how dangerous it is. Somebody gets my driver's license, my registration. They're gonna, they could cause me some problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's the same thing as like walking down the street and dropping your wallet on the floor. I mean, it's, it's fine until someone picks it up, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 between your computer and that destination, there are so many gaps. I mean, even to the, the copper wire that runs from place to place, I mean, there's so many gaps that we can grab your Every stuff. guest in my complex has access to the computer and filing cabinets that had this info. Because it's just in an open office in the building, which also has the, the gym and stuff that you would go in there, you know, for stuff. So, <laughs> you know, the whole, it, it's kind of an insecure world. Facebook, Google... The United States government could have all the great encryption. They could do a great job keeping your data private and your apartment complex or your, your uh, pizza delivery place can, can compromise you. Tough thing to regulate, and regulations will probably have a lot of unintended consequences. Well, that's true. You know, I, I, we, we take security very seriously here at Dev Technology. We do a lot of training for our, our own employees about how to protect um, their data, uh, especially sensitive data for our government clients. Um, you know, and I think Yemi and I are least concerned about some of the, the technical data breaches, right? Um, but it's people making silly decisions, right? It's the phishing emails or somebody plugging in a USB keychain that they took off of, you know, their spouse's computer and who knows what they're doing. They're, they may be non-technical, but those are the real dangers, right? It's still the person at the end of the day that is the weakest link in some of these computer systems. Um, because frankly, if you want to hack into some system that's on the internet, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, yeah. you know, we've, we've seen that time and time again. Sure. Now, do you guys do uh, sort of, I'm not sure what you call it, penetration or security testing so that you would have an outside firm try to fish your employees and see where your vulnerabilities yeah. are? Have you done that type of thing yeah, before? We, we have. Yeah. Yep, we do it. We do it now as we speak. So we do uh, phishing testing. We use a, a software program to do it. Uh, we actually had an awareness campaign uh, a year ago for it before we started. Well, I can say just cause for, for listeners, I'm not actually an employee of Dev Technology, but I do some contracting media work for you guys doing this. So I can tell you there is a culture of security around the office. I see the signs, the hallway there, talking about yeah. practices, and um, it does seem to be part of part of the culture here. It needs to be that everywhere. Absolutely. You know, until we get to a point where 
we're so secure that we can leave our information all over the place. We got to protect it because there's always someone coming after your information. Yeah, yeah. Security is probably going to be the next frontier too. So what? What <laughs> part of it? Sort of interesting identity and authentication technologies are out there right now. Ooh, interesting. Any, hmm. Anything coming on that helps us helps us secure our. Well, biometrics, and, and we recently had a conversation about that. I mean, that's something that we do here. Uh, so, biometrics very well. is this fin- fingerprint, voice print, what, facial recognition. Facial recognition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, security, if you break it down, um, they break it down. And it, to be able to authenticate or to have access to something, I want to know that you're the person. So, I want to require something that you have that I know that you have and something that's a part of you. Uh, so, a lot of times <laughs> we'll say something that you have could be like your PIV card. And a part of you would be your biometrics. If I have those two things, there's that key that'll allow me to let you have access to something. So biometrics, because it's innate to you, we think that's very important as part of identity and access. So that's something that we use. Yeah, not everybody always has identification on them. I mean, you know, we do a lot of work with federal law enforcement. So a lot of people are obviously trying to obfuscate their identities. from the federal government if they have committed a crime or are here illegally. But biometrics generally doesn't lie, right? Especially if you have, you know, multimodal authentication around fingerprints, facial recognition, you know, before you know it, you can pretty much confirm with very little um, margin of error who someone is. Um, but, you know, we all, most of us who have iPhones probably log into our phone with, you know, either facial recognition if you have the, the latest or the, the little thumbprint scanner, right? You know, that's biometrics as well. That's, that's another way to secure your phone, um, secure your data, right? So are we, seeing bio, uh, are we seeing facial recognition being used in federal <clears throat> contracts now, technology for that? I would say so. Or are we seeing it more like in like law enforcement? targeted law enforcement use? Well, or what, same what do you guys thing. know about? So the federal agencies that do law enforcement, so in the airports right now, CBP is doing a pilot where um, foreign travelers come back, they're recognized by their face. Uh, it's actually more picture recognition than full facial recognition. There's a difference. Uh, but there's a database of photos, and you come back, it snaps your photo, it matches you to say that you are which are who your ID says you are on the way back in. I believe they're like all the major airports are doing it right now. Yeah, a lot of this has to do with um, data data capture, right? You know, I think even when we were children, you probably remember having a police officer come to your school for some assembly and fingerprinting all the kids just for fun. Obviously, they were putting that in their database for later. <laughs> but the federal government, law enforcement, has a large database of fingerprints from individuals, you know, nationals and foreign nationals alike. Um, so, you know, that's still probably the primary method of biometric identification. You need to build out those databases of facial recognition or facial photos um, or other modes of biometrics. I mean, and that's that's the new frontier, right? Yeah. So you think that's the one that can, in five or 10 years, we're going to be seeing facial recognition systems for a lot of our identity stuff? Yeah. So the technology, we talked about tools earlier. The technology, I would say, is not new. The technology is there. The application isn't on your laptops or in different places because now here we talk about regulation because now it's it's if I have your face everywhere now I have a piece of you that's very dangerous in terms of recognizing you so there's regulation around how to protect that I mean we can use it on your iPhones but it's not to the specifications that you would use like for example there are satellites (laughs) right now that as you walk down the street can do facial recognition on you 
far up in space. Uh, when, I don't know if you guys remember the Boston bomber, mm -hmm. uh, to find the Boston bomber, because I was actually a federal employee at that time, they asked a lot of the agencies for data, and they use cameras around the city to actually identify the bomber and where he was. So that technology is is mature enough to use. I actually just came from CES in January. Probably the coolest thing in the world. You go out to CES, and I mean, there are thousands and thousands of technology. I'm watching uh, facial recognition technology catching faces inside their car. Mm -hmm. So you get an angle inside the window of a car and, and recognizing a face down to the confidence level of like 65 to 70%. So there are cameras, lenses, databases that really do some very mature things right now, but it's not into general use yet because it, that has to be protected. Yeah, but I think it's going to happen rapidly, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have amazing cameras in our, on our phone. I mean, really tiny cameras that, you know, a couple of years ago, you'd have to buy a professional grade camera to equal that kind of resolution and um, capture potential. Also, we have all these connected devices now. I think I can actually download data from my um, washing machine if I want to know things about like how many times I washed my clothes last month. It's ridiculous. I have no idea why LG thinks that's a necessary feature, but they do. But we have a lot of connected devices. And once you start pairing that, that ability to capture data with the ability to kind of feed it to a centralized location, you know, the amount of data that you collect starts looking like what Facebook does or Google wow. does today, right? I mean, it, it's going to be a it's going to happen very quickly and before we know it. So, you know, going back to regulation, you know, the question is, how do you get ahead of these things before you just have every company putting a camera inside their shop, pointing out the front window and anybody who's coming by selling, doing some... Selling, selling real-time location data online well, to, to whoever wants to buy it. I mean, that, that's what cell <clears throat> companies were doing uh, just a few months ago, actually, yeah, and got busted. Say, yeah. It's yeah. already uh, here. It's uh, happening. I don't think they, it's happening faster than regulation can happen. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I like the the movie Minority Report, yeah. the Tom Cruise movie a number of years ago. You know, he's walking through the mall or something at some point, and there's a targeted advertisement to him yeah. calling out his name, <laughs> right? I, it, it's not sci-fi. That is just around the corner. It's here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Well, if you look at your phones on location services, I actually <clears throat> took my family, we did that, and you look at the, all the things that have location services on, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's pretty scary. That could be an, uh, that could be an area for regulation is mm -hmm. the default privacy settings for, the, for these apps, you know, or it's got, I think it's gotten better. At least they ask you. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, of course. And you could read the service level agreement, right? Don't you read that for every application? Every single one of them. <laughs> the 40-page yeah. thing that has the, yeah, all the, the legal the mumbo beginning jumbo. and I accept yeah. at the end. Yeah. That's the two words I <laughs> Scroll to the bottom. That's accept. right. Yep, there we go. Listen, guys, I think it's been another <clears throat> uh, really entertaining devcast talking about this stuff. And, um, and I think that'll wrap it up for today. Cool. All right. Thank you. Sounds right. good. Thanks, Will. and Adam, thank you. All right. All right. Thanks for listening to DevCast. By the way, dev technology is growing, and that means we're hiring for a variety of positions, including DevOps engineers, SharePoint developers, Java developers, database developers, and system engineers. To learn more about dev technology and to view full job listings, visit devtechnology.com careers. We've been rated as a top workplace by the Washington Post five years in a row based on employee surveys. And here's what application administrator Cindy had to say about working at Dev Technology. I see the company always looking forward 
at what's coming out in 10 years and thinking, wow, do you think we could develop something like that in six and a half or seven years? Now, be sure to follow Dev Technology on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to make sure you're seeing the most recent job openings, as well as blog posts from our subject matter experts and just to see some of the fun stuff our employees are up to around the office. Thanks for listening.